0: Hello everybody, I'm Danny Boom Boom McCarthy. Our own generation enjoys the legacy bequeathed to it by that which preceded it. We frequently know more, not because we have moved ahead by our own natural ability, but because we are supported by the menial strength of others, and possess riches that we have inherited from our forefathers. Bernard of Clairvaux used to compare us to punt dwarves perched on the shoulders of giants. He pointed out that we see more and farther than our predecessors, not because we have keener vision or greater height. But because we are lifted up and borne aloft on their gigantic stature. John of Salisbury, the Metallogicon. What comes to mind when I say Middle Ages? If you're like most people, you probably imagine kings sitting in cold castles, knights jousting in clunky armor, and, and something like this. <laughs> you wouldn't be wrong. All of these things were part of that thousand-year period we call the Middle Ages, but something else might have come to mind, a somewhat derogatory phrase often used to refer to the medieval period. I'm referring, of course, to Dark Ages. This phrase is thrown around in popular culture in reference to the millennium when the Catholic Church dominated Europe. But among historians, Dark Ages has somewhat gone out of fashion, And it's a good thing that it has, because it paints an inadequate picture of the time from approximately A.D. 500 to 1500. The Dark Ages, we're told, was a time when superstition ruled Europe. Nobody made any developments in science or art. Malicious knights marauded for marauding's sake. Nobody read, nobody thought. Europe spent a thousand years steeping in ignorance and dumb religion. The grand civilization of Rome had fallen, probably due to the rise of Christianity, and the continent was taken over by vicious and dull-witted barbarians from the north and the east. It would be the half-breed progeny of these rapacious barbarians and their poor Roman victims that would populate Europe for the rest of history, producing a people half-civilized and half-savage. If you're of European descent, it's likely that you too are a product of this strange brew. Of course, this narrative is largely a myth, even if it does provide a nice dramatic lead-up to the Age of Reason, or Enlightenment. Get it? Dark Ages versus Enlightenment? This juxtaposition is less of an accident than you might think.
1: Let me give you, by the way, an example of a typical story that people have been taught to believe about the Catholic Church, and then consider why it is they so readily believed it when there isn't even a stitch of evidence for it. And here's an example that I think even many people in the viewing audience might have believed that I myself believed. I had no other reason, no reason to think otherwise. And that's the idea that Christopher Columbus, when he engaged in his famous voyages, was actually seeking in part to prove that the earth was not flat, but rather spherical. Now, we've all heard the usual story, that Columbus was warned No, Columbus, no, don't go sailing that far. You're going to fall off the edge of the earth, don't you know that? The earth is a big flat disk and you're going to fall off the edge and get eaten by dragons or giant uh, radioactive spiders are going to eat you, something like that. He was warned about all this. Don't do it. Well, he did it anyway, and this goes to show how brave and wonderful he was. Now, I don't dispute that Columbus was indeed a brave and skilled navigator. But Columbus himself, were he here today, would tell you that he was not seeking to prove the Earth was spherical. Why? Because everybody already knew it. Everybody already knew the Earth was a sphere. In effect, no educated person in Europe believed the Earth was flat. That is a myth. That's an almost absurd myth. Now, I realize that is so much the opposite of what you've been told. You almost think that I must be making this up, right? Sure, people believe in a flat Earth, but I promise you they didn't. And there's actually a whole book that was written. To answer the obvious follow-up question, if nobody believed in a flat earth, how did this myth ever get started? And the answer comes in a small book by a guy named Jeffrey Burton Russell. He wrote a book called Inventing the Flat Earth. And what he found was that it was a very, very tiny group of intellectuals in the 19th century who gave birth to this myth. And they did it because it made the Catholic Church look ridiculous. Because in the 19th century, there was a lot of... Debate and dispute with the church about Darwin and other matters. And the idea was that if we can portray the church as being so ridiculous that it used to actually teach the earth was flat, then we can show that she is an utterly contemptible opponent. So they invented this story to cast the church in an absurd, ridiculous light. I am sure they had no idea the longevity of this myth, that in the 21st century people would still be taught it. I'm sure somewhere in the world right now as I speak, Somebody's being taught the stupid church, taught the earth was flat, and brave, heroic Columbus proved them wrong. It just won't go away. But why won't it go away? Why does it have such staying power? And the reason is that it feeds into this enlightenment stereotype, right? The Catholic Church is stupid, it inhibits progress, it forces us to believe foolish things.
0: Now, yes, it's true that so-called barbarians kicked the shit out of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century AD. It's also true that these Germanic and Eastern European folks were a destructive bunch, probably destroying much of the accumulated wisdom of the ancient world. And yes, it's true that this led to a time of chaos and despair in what had been the Roman Empire. But it's not true that this quote-unquote dark period lasted for the entire thousand-year medieval age. It's not true that the Middle Ages was an era of complete stupidity and irrationality. Now, to be fair, there was a lot of stupidity and irrationality, at least by modern standards. But if we were to retrospectively apply our standards on all historical people and periods, we'd find nothing but stupidity, and the giants on whose shoulders we stand would be found to be bumbling idiots. Besides, there's a lot of ignorance and stupidity these days, too. I mean, just turn on the news. I prefer to examine ideas within the context of their times, at least to begin with, as it's the times that shape the ideas, just as it's the ideas which shape the times. And so, in the Middle Ages, we find a number of momentous advancements in reason and critical thinking, even by today's standards. But before we get to all that, we first need to tie up some loose ends from the last episode and talk just a little bit more about ancient philosophy in order to set the stage for the bulk of today's show. From ancient Greece and Rome came the mysterious liberal arts. As with today's liberal arts degrees, nobody ever expected to make any money off a liberal arts education. The difference is that, back 1500 to 2000 years ago, that was actually considered a good thing. The word liberal comes from the Latin liber, meaning free, and the liberal arts were those disciplines that only a free man could pursue. But it also meant that one who studied the liberal arts would set his mind free, free to pursue a life of virtue without worldly concerns, and to realize something like divine or true happiness, what the Greeks called eudaimonia. The Romans parroted this Greek idea as they were often wont to do, and thus it was preserved and passed down to Christian Europe. Now, interestingly... The Greeks left us no list of the subjects that actually comprise a liberal education, at least no list that we're aware of. The first more or less clear list comes from the Roman Marcus Varro, who lived during the first century B.C., so think 99 to 0 B.C. In a work that's now lost, Varro supposedly put forth nine liberal arts—grammar, logic, rhetoric, geometry, arithmetic, astrology, music, medicine, and architecture— The next major development in the liberal arts came in the 4th century AD, in the form of Martianus Capella's De Nuptius Philologiae et Mercuriae. Forgive the poor Latin, in English that would be On the Marriage of Philology and Mercury. This book is still out there. I'll link to an English translation in the show notes in case you're interested, and I do highly recommend it, although it is rather bizarre and perhaps not the most readable book, but for those of you who are interested in historical curiosities, it's definitely worth the download. So despite the fact that he was a pagan, and despite the fact that his book is loaded with overtly pagan themes, Capella's De Nuptius would essentially become the backbone of medieval Catholic education. So as you can tell from the English title anyway, our two main characters are Philology and Mercury. Now, we already know the groom. Mercury has already come up in this series, and I'm sure you remember him the author of 20,000 books, the first master of the Hermetic tradition, Mr. Waterclock himself. Mercury is the Roman name of the Greek god Hermes, who in Egypt, of course, was the ibis-headed bringer of all knowledge, Thoth. But what of the bride? In modern terms, philology refers to the study of language, J.R.R. R. Tolkien was a philologist. That's how he was able to come up with all of those elf languages that actually function as languages, at least that's what I'm told. Anyway, in De Nuptius, or On the Marriage of Philology and Mercury, we might better understand who philology the character is and what she's representative of by examining the words etymology. Philo, as everybody knows, means love or love of. Logi comes from logos meaning something like word or meaning or the meaning behind a word. Logos is where our word logic comes from. It's the logi in biology, geology, radiology, and every other investigative field you can imagine. In Stoic and Neoplatonic thought, the Logos, with a capital L, was the generative force of the universe. Remember last time I mentioned the Stoic concept of Logos Spermaticos, the creative energy of God. The Christians would also adopt this view of the Logos, as evinced by its use in the opening verse of the Gospel of John.
2: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God.
0: In English, the word Word in this verse is, at least in my opinion, overly simplistically translated as Word. But in the original Greek it says Logos, and this connotes something far deeper than Word something like the logical patterns that underlie reality and give language its meaning. (laughs) But without getting too deep down that rabbit hole, philology, the beautiful bride in Capellas de Nuptius, represents a passion for true meaning. True meaning being attainable only through the careful application of language. So here is the perfect match. The bride of the knowledge-bearer is none other than education itself. As the later philosopher John of Salisbury would write when arguing in favor of the important relationship between logos and wisdom quote, If we may resort to a fable to illustrate our point, antiquity considered that Prudence, the sister of truth, was not sterile, but bore a wonderful daughter, Philology, whom she committed to the chaste embrace of Mercury. In other words, Prudence, the sister of truth, arranged that her daughter, the love of logical reasoning and scientific knowledge, would acquire fertility and luster from eloquence. Such is the union of philology and mercury, eloquence. This probably sounds pretty hokey to the modern ear, but a thousand, thousand five hundred years ago, this was a smash hit. It's important because it introduced what we now know as the seven liberal arts, personified as philology's bridesmaids. They are the seven disciplines that liberate one's mind from the dull and ignorant confines of material existence, and set the individual free to ponder divine truth. Capella mostly stuck to Varro's list, though he did drop medicine and archaeology. These two arts, he said, are professions. They serve definite, worldly purposes, and and therefore could not be considered truly liberal. They weren't abstract enough. And so, from Dynoptius, we get the quote-unquote official list of the seven liberal arts at last. The first three foundational arts which deal with thought and language itself are grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Collectively, these three arts would become known as the trivium, meaning the place where three roads meet. The latter four scientific arts are arithmetic, geometry, musical harmony, and astronomy. These would later be known as the quadrivium, meaning, of course, place where four roads meet. The allegory of the marriage of philology and Mercury is pretty clear, I think. These seven arts, the bridesmaids, aid the union of genuine learning and true knowledge. Therefore, a liberal education, in the classical sense, refers to the study of these seven topics in order to attain enlightenment. Now, the Christians didn't just insert this pedagogy into their system unchanged and overnight, of course. Originally, even before the time of Capella, Christians had denounced pagan teachings, saying that there was no good to be found in the words of the heathens, One influential thinker of the early church was Tertullian, who declared that all of Greco-Roman philosophy was a big scam, meant to turn people away from God and to destroy their lives. This rigid, Bible and church authorities only doctrine remained the norm for quite some time, until St. Augustine, a contemporary of Capellas who I briefly mentioned in the last show, really began to turn the tide on this. In the late 4th and early 5th centuries, Augustine said, Look, everybody, we're... We're letting a whole bunch of good stuff go to waste. When the Jews were let out of Egypt by Moses, they were given the gold and the silver of the Egyptians. They didn't reject it because it was crummy Egyptian gold. They had no problem taking good things from bad people. That, Augustine argued, should be the attitude Christians have toward heathen philosophy. Take the good, toss the bad. Of course, he made sure to add that the Bible is the ultimate truth tester, Should any teaching or doctrine contradict Scripture, that teaching or doctrine is obviously a lie and should be thrown out and forgotten. But everything else was fair game, just so long as the good Christian scholar always remembered that despite what the pagans said, the point of a liberal education is not the pursuit of wisdom for its own sake. It's to glorify God and to affirm the truth of the Bible. For instance, Augustine acknowledged seven liberal arts, just like Capella and he even agreed as to what arts were on that list, except for one. Augustine's seven liberal arts are the same as Capella's, only instead of including astronomy, he substitutes philosophy. In the pre-Christian tradition, it seemed to be understood that one could only study philosophy after having pursued an education involving the liberal arts, including astronomy. As Pythagoras is supposed to have said many, many hundreds of years before any of these guys I'm talking about now, quote, Education must come before philosophy." But Augustine would have had to change it around. The Bible explicitly forbids getting caught up looking at the stars too much. Too close to worshipping false gods, you know? So I won't say Augustine's contribution was perfect, but it was a hell of an improvement over Tertullian's paranoid finger wagging, and the Western world would have looked very, very different without Augustine. So part of why he was willing to take pagan literature into consideration is probably due to the fact that he himself was a pagan before he heard the good word. And I mean, he was a good old-fashioned revelrous kind of pagan. He got drunk, chased women, studied ancient texts, all that good stuff. But all the while, he couldn't shake the feeling that he was being called to something higher, though he found it difficult to give up his worldly ways. As he famously said, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. I'll drink to that. Specifically, the pagan Augustine was a Neoplatonist, which meant that he believed that at the center of reality was a supreme being from which everything else emanated. When God finally made him pure, that is, when he converted to Christianity, he proceeded to inject as much Neoplatonic thought into his new religion as he possibly could. In other words, he took what he perceived to be the good, non-satanic aspects of Neoplatonic belief and sprinkled in some Jesus. You'll remember from the last show that Neoplatonists believed that God is the purest of purities, the center of reality from which all else emanates. Well, to the freshly baptized Augustine, the Supreme Being was no longer some vague, abstract, philosophical deity. It was Yahweh, the triune God as revealed through the Holy Scriptures. Imagine a set of concentric circles, rings within rings, with God in the middle. The tightest circles, the ones closest to the center, are the purest, the most holy, the closest to the source. The farther away from the center a circle emanates, the less holy it is. But also, as we move from the middle to the outer rim, we find that as the circles emanate out and away from God, the larger those circles are. That is to say, there's only one God, a few angels, a few more saints, a few more savable souls still, and a whole mess of damnable sinners. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Pretty easy to see how Neoplatonic theology might apply to such a verse. So if you understand the concepts of all life emanating from God, of life being more degenerate the farther it emanates from God, and of the majority of lives, human ones anyway, occupying a degenerate tier of existence far removed from their creator, then you've got a pretty decent understanding of the cosmic caste system that comes with the sort of Neoplatonic Christian worldview championed by Saint Augustine. He applied the same logic to the question of ethics. Specifically, he challenged the age-old idea that evil was a force unto itself, almost like another god that could somehow oppose the all-powerful good god. Instead, Augustine said that evil is merely the absence of good, just like cold is the absence of heat, and not a force in and of itself. For that fundamental realization, which is so easy for us to take for granted nowadays, Augustine is deserving of a mention in this story of critical thinking. But it's also important to know about Augustine and the Neoplatonic flavor he added to early Christianity, as that's going to be the brine in which today's remaining thinkers were pickled. But enough about that. This episode's supposed to be about the Middle Ages, and we're still screwing around in ancient times. So let's jump ahead a couple centuries after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, to the year 800 or so, when Europe as we know it today was born. The father of Europe was Charles the Great, better known to us as Charlemagne, Pater Europae. In the aftermath of the barbarian invasions and the Roman collapse, much of the continent was thrown into disarray and if there is any portion of the Middle Ages that could rightly be called a Dark Age, this was it. Charlemagne is traditionally held to be the hero who reestablished order and unified the various fragmented European peoples. Now, it seems to me that what Charlemagne actually did was take a bunch of local, relatively autonomous and diverse groups of people and force them into an artificial polity modeled after a semi-romanticized notion of Greco-Roman society. A good example of what this great restoration actually looked like on the ground can be found in Saxony, where Charlemagne waged a series of wars of conquest. In the early 780s, he issued the Capitulatio de Partibus Saxoniae, or Capitulary of Saxony, which laid down how Saxons who resisted his invading force should be dealt with. Quote, If any one of the race of the Saxons, hereafter concealed among them, shall have wished to hide himself unbaptized, and shall have scorned to come to baptism, and shall have wished to remain a pagan, let him be punished by death. Unquote. Pater Europae, indeed. Just remember that it was Charlemagne's empire that a certain someone once referred to as the First Reich. But for now, anyway... We're just here to look at the advancements in education and critical thought found in the life and legacy of Charlemagne. He was himself a proud barbarian, a warrior king, and not exactly the kind of guy you'd expect to hear about in the history of critical thinking. And yet, he's one of our story's most important characters. Starting in 787, he issued commands to establish cathedral schools in every town and village across the empire, specifically to weed out regional imperfections in writing and speech, and to effectively universalize the Latin language throughout the realm. To head this momentous operation, Charlemagne chose Alcuin of York, a master of the liberal arts and a professor extraordinaire. Alcuin believed very seriously that only through the study of the liberal arts could one come to any real knowledge of Christianity, whereas Pythagoras had said that the liberal arts are preparation for philosophy, Alcuin said that they were preparation for theology. He felt that with his faith and education, paired with Charlemagne's political power and influence, they could improve upon the greatness of the ancients and usher in a new Christian utopia. Writes Alcuin to Charlemagne, If only there were many who would follow the illustrious desire of your intent, perchance a new, nay, more excellent Athens might be founded in Frankland. For our Athens, being ennobled with the mastership of Christ the Lord, would surpass all the wisdom of the studies of the academy. That was instructed only in the Platonic disciplines, and had fame for its culture in the seven arts, but ours, being enriched beyond this with the sevenfold plenitude of the Holy Spirit, would excel all the dignity of secular learning. Unquote. The early church and state school system set up by Charlemagne and Alcuin was a major part of the so called Carolingian Renaissance the period during the reign of Charlemagne when the post-Roman chaos of Europe finally began to abate, and an interest in the continent's older philosophical traditions returned. This renaissance was short-lived, however. It pretty much died with Charlemagne and Alcuin. But it did set the stage for another medieval renaissance, one that was far more impressive, the renaissance of the 12th century. This will be the high point of critical thinking in the Middle Ages. One of the major catalysts of this later Renaissance was the recovery of the works of Aristotle. Only a relative few of Aristotle's ancient works had been translated from Greek into Latin before the mid-1100s, but at that point his philosophy finally began to seep back into the West, having been preserved by Greek and Arabic speakers to the East. And with a rekindled interest in Aristotle to counter the Neoplatonic mysticism that had long dominated Catholic thought, a whole new system of education and critical thinking arose in the West, combining Aristotelian philosophy with Catholic doctrine and the liberal arts curricula of the cathedral schools. According to Morris Bishop in his book The Middle Ages, quote, Aristotle, the master of those who know, as Dante called him, possessed one of the greatest minds in intellectual history. Perhaps indeed the greatest. He proposed a complete system explaining the universe, but the mechanistic Aristotelian system conflicted with the Church's system, for Aristotle made no provision for the exercise of free will, for the intervention of deity, for miracle, for revelation. Hence the last judgment of human souls disappears, along with salvation and punishment, and God is left without much to do in his world. The dangers to orthodoxy in Aristotle caused him to be repeatedly banned by the Church. Unquote but this censorship could not outlast the intense interest in the ancient works that was spreading like wildfire throughout Christendom. The Renaissance of the 12th century marks the point at which Aristotle was finally worked into the Catholic Weltanschauung. On the next page in his book, Bishop writes, But Aristotle's intellectual eminence could not be denied, nor could his teachings be dismissed by any church pronouncement. The rationality of science and the constancy of the world's behavior had to be accepted although one might reject the philosopher's mechanistic outlook. The works of Aristotle led scholars to the study of dialectic, which is both a subject matter and a scholastic method. Dialectic is no more than a formalized logic based on Aristotle and developed by means of syllogism. According to our contemporary, R. W. Southern, the student, quote, "...learned to classify the type of valid argument, to detect the causes of error and to unmask the process of deception." Once more, he found that, instead of the bewildering variety which met the casual inquirer, the types of valid argument are strictly limited in number and can be classified on a simple principle. Logic was an instrument of order in a chaotic world. The world of nature was chaotic, a playground of supernatural forces, demonic and otherwise, over which the mind had no control. But logic, however obscurely at first, opened a window onto an orderly and systematic view of the world and. Of man's mind. Unquote, unquote. The absolute peak of this medieval rationality is called scholasticism. Some of the key characters are Anselm of Canterbury, Peter Abelard, Albertus Magnus, and Thomas Aquinas. This was an educational movement of sorts that really took off around the year 1100 and remained the collegiate norm for centuries, arising as the result of the recovery of Greco Roman classics in the West, specifically Aristotle. This would finally repudiate some of the Neoplatonic mysticism that had run through Christianity since the days of Augustine. The scholastics took a sophisticated, and one might even go so far as to say liberal, approach to the old question of reason versus faith. This had been an issue for centuries in the Church. How to reconcile logic and rationality with religious belief? We saw earlier what some answers to that question were. Tertullian simply said, stick to faith, don't bother with reason. And Augustine said, well, bother with reason, but only very narrowly and cautiously. The scholastics, on the other hand, said, hey, hey, we can arrive at certain truths through faith and faith alone, truths like the crucifixion and the resurrection and all that jazz, but we can arrive at other certain truths through reason and reason alone, truths that are revealed when we apply innate human rationality to sense experience things like architecture and medicine and whatnot. Both are paths to truth, and since God is the source of all truth, the scholastics concluded that God is the author of faith and reason. They are complementary forces, not antagonistic ones, and any apparent contradiction between faith and reason must be the result of operator error. It's not God's fault. The first universities were founded in the late 11th and early 12th centuries, the University of Bologna and Paris, Cambridge and Oxford, places like that. And it was in these universities that the scholastics began to shine. Now, you've got to understand that scholasticism wasn't a philosophy or a doctrine. It was a method of inquiry, based on the principle that faith and rationality affirm each other. So let's take a look at the scholastic method. The scholastic method had two key facets. Lectio, or exposition and disputatio, or disputation. First came lectio, the exposition, or simply, lecture. The lecture would be delivered by a schoolmaster, and would be based on an authoritative ancient text. Medieval scholars considered certain ancient authors to be authorities in given subjects. Their work is what set the standard that the Catholics were hoping to emulate. So, for instance, Priscian was an authority in the subject of grammar, Obviously Aristotle was the authority in logic, Cicero in rhetoric, and of course the Bible was the prime authority in all matters of theology. The master would focus on an authoritative text based on the subject being studied, and explain it to his student body, supplementing with all kinds of commentary of his own, in order to really help the students come to a deep understanding of the work. From this presentation, the students could then arrive at individual interpretations of the texts now that they understood what it's about, what it's not about, and what, if its claims are true, must necessarily follow logically from it. This, in turn, led to disputatio, or disputation. While the lectio was more or less like a modern-day lecture at school, uh, minus the ancient masters, of course, the disputation isn't really something that average American students are going to encounter. And yet, it was the essence of education in the high Middle Ages. The master would propose a question relating to the text. This would always have to be a very clear, precise question. Vagueness is the mortal enemy of the scholastic method. So, for instance, take the simple question, Is there a god? First, this might seem like a really vague question, but actually, this is just the kind of question the scholastics were into. It's simply asking if a supreme deity exists in reality. It's not asking which god exists but if there even is one in the first place. Then a student would answer the question by offering a logical argument. First, however, he'd have to clearly define his terms. He must define God. So, he says, God is the greatest conceivable being. Okay. Bearing that definition in mind, our hypothetical student approaches the question, Is there a God? Yes. Something that only exists in the imagination is inferior to something that exists both in the imagination and in reality. So if God doesn't exist in reality, he's inferior to the greatest conceivable being. Therefore, God exists. Now that, my friends, was an actual argument for the existence of God put forth by one of the forerunners of scholasticism, St. Anselm of Canterbury. It's called the ontological proof for the existence of God. And this is obviously a pretty damn bad argument, but let's look at how it satisfies the scholastic requirements for an argument. First, we've got a solid definition of God, greatest conceivable being. Alright, if we accept this definition, which I don't see any reason not to, we may then replace the word God wherever it occurs in the argument without compromising the meaning of the argument. Something that only exists in the imagination is inferior to something that exists both in the imagination and in reality. If the greatest conceivable being does not exist in reality, he, or it, is inferior to the greatest conceivable being, which must exist in both the imagination and reality. Therefore, the greatest conceivable being exists. In other words, what Anselm was trying to say was, The best thing ever must exist in the mind and in the world. If God is only a figment of our imaginations, then he'd be inferior to something that was both in the mind and in the world. So God, by definition, must exist. Definitely not the best answer, but that's okay. Student number two will take care of that for us. This is where the disputation really gets going. Student number two says, that's a fucking stupid argument. And then he got the Blessed Virgin's shit beat out of him by the schoolmaster. Of course, student number two wouldn't say that. It's something that we dismissive, high-horse-riding modern folks would say. The rules of the scholastics were no fallacies, no ad hominems, no personal attacks, no straw man arguments, nothing. Only rigorous, logical discourse for the scholastics. It's the second student's job to refute the answer posited by the first student, but to do so with integrity, he must first repeat the initial argument to his opponent's satisfaction to prove that he really heard it and really understood it. As I said, no fallacies allowed. Everybody had to be sure that the correct argument was being addressed. So once that was taken care of, the second student could begin with his response. But first, let's take things in stride and clarify the argument, taking the role of student number two, and as we do so, Bear in mind what we learned about syllogisms in the last episode. So, student number two says, You're saying that a supreme being must exist, and you're saying so on the following basis. That which can be conceived of and exists in reality is superior to that which is only conceived of. For instance, it's far better to have the idea of a glass of water and actually possess a glass of water than it is to merely imagine a glass of water. So it is with God. Student number one accepts this summary of his argument. Student number two's role now is to reveal any fallacies present in the argument. One fallacy leaps right out at us in this case, the fallacy of circular reasoning or begging the question. This is when the conclusion of an argument must be assumed to be true for its premises to work. Student number one's argument is, in fact, just a really long-winded and complicated way of saying a supreme being exists, therefore God exists, which, of course, is just another way of saying God, therefore God. We can see why this argument doesn't work if we substitute God and supreme being for pretty much anything else. Here's a fitting example for this show. Take utopia to mean the ideal place. The ideal place would exist in both the mind and in reality. If utopia does not exist in reality, it is not the ideal place. And yet, by definition, utopia is the ideal place. Therefore, utopia exists. Except it doesn't. And I'm not weighing in on the God question here. I'm only saying that this argument is invalid. And other scholastics were the first to point that out. See how the premises lead to the conclusion, and yet the conclusion affirms the premises? The premises assume the conclusion to be true before it's proven, and then for the conclusion to be true, premises have to be true, and so it just goes round and round in a circle, but it's totally invalid as an argument. So, on that basis, student number two could declare student number one's argument garbage. It could then be safely removed from the pool of potential answers to the question, is there a god? And then they could move on to addressing another potential answer, this back-and-forth process is called dialectic. Someone would put forth a thesis, someone would then response with an antithesis, and so on and so on, until finally there were no further disagreements to be had and a synthesis was reached. Like Socrates, the scholastics sought truth by process of elimination. They brilliantly combined the logic of Aristotle with the Socratic method to systematize philosophy more effectively than anyone had before, or perhaps even since. This method of truth-seeking became the vehicle by which the liberal arts, plus theology, were studied in European universities during the late Middle Ages. It wasn't until after this period that the stereotypical split between reason and faith occurred. To the scholastics, they went together like body and blood. If you really want to see scholasticism in action, I highly recommend you go searching for the Summa Theologica, by the 13th century philosopher St. Thomas Aquinas, who's pretty much universally recognized as the quintessential scholastic thinker and one of the greatest, most intelligent philosophers of all time. Aquinas is definitely your man if you want to delve deeper into the scholastic method, but there's already so much content out there on St. Thomas that I don't really want to focus on him in this episode. It'd just be redundant. Instead, we'll be directing most of our attention at an earlier and lesser-known medieval philosopher who I already sneakily mentioned twice in this episode. With him, we'll get to look a bit more at the liberal arts, which is always fun, and explore what logic and critical thinking actually are. The fellow in question is the late 12th-century philosopher Johannes Parvis Sarasperiensis. Today, he's known as John of Salisbury. In 1159, he wrote a defense of a classical liberal arts education against a rising tide of sophistry. These itinerant teachers, whom he called cornificians, preached against the long and arduous process of scholastic education, claiming that they had a super-secret shortcut to wisdom. These were the listical writers of their time, the the how-I-mastered-the-liberal-arts-in-just-twenty-minutes-a-day guys. Which is fine, I guess, except for the fact that they also claimed that the complete or real liberal arts education was actually a bad thing. According to John, the Cornificians scoffed at any kind of study of the ancients. They had no respect for grammar, logic, rhetoric, or history, though it would appear they had a particular beef with logic. They would travel around preaching the virtues of non-education, always for a fee, of course, and what most horrified John... Many of them actually became monks and physicians in order to place themselves at influential positions in society. He reports that, as monks, they were wolves in sheep's clothing. And as physicians, they refused to help anyone who couldn't pay, and they practiced quack medicine anyway. They did think education was for chumps, after all. The argument the Cornificians used to justify their position was simply this. Nature provided humanity with speaking ability and rationality. Therefore, these things don't need to be taught. This is so obviously the kind of argument that's aimed at pouty teenagers. I mean, it just self-destructs immediately. It's really bad. I mean, for Christ's sake, yeah, humans are born with the ability to speak, but if you find a human who's speaking a language, you know, like the Cornificians and everybody else did, they, uh, They probably learned it from somebody. But no, 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 no. The Cornificians said that language and logic are innate and do not need to be cultivated. In fact, any attempt to do so will actually stunt one's natural abilities. But wait, it gets even crazier. They acknowledged that people are born with varying degrees of ability in speaking and reasoning and figured, well, because education is useless, you're pretty much stuck at the level of proficiency you were born on. One could never improve. He or she could only rely on the words of the naturally wise. And remember, the Cornificians, who I'm sure thought they were the naturally born wise ones, were placing themselves in influential positions as doctors and monks. As John tells it, these guys were obvious hucksters, and so it's no surprise that he would want to address their piss-poor non-arguments before they caught on too much. And so, in 1159, he wrote The Metalogicon, A Defense of the Verbal and Logical Arts of the Trivium. This is a dense book. I don't mean that it's particularly big. I mean that it's just packed with content, with substance. I'm flipping through my copy right now, and I can't even find one page that I haven't marked up with underlines and stars and circles and diagrams of logical arguments and other marginalia. You could almost look at it as if it were a workbook in logic, Although, honestly, you probably wouldn't want it to be the first book on logic you read. John of Salisbury actually addressed this book to his boss, Lord Chancellor of England and later Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket. So, needless to say, he's assuming his audience is already pretty well acquainted with the liberal arts. Anyway, more than just an attack on the Cornificians, the Metalogicon is actually a window into medieval education. It's divided into five sections— First is, of course, an introduction to the book itself. Second comes an introduction to the Trivium, and a treatise on its first aspect, grammar. The third and fourth sections both deal pretty thoroughly with logic, the Trivium's second aspect. And finally, the fifth section closes out the discussion on logic and addresses the nature of truth. Lessons on rhetoric, the Trivium's third aspect, are interspersed throughout the entirety of the work. John concedes that language and reason are innate human abilities. On this point, he's in agreement with the Cornificians. Of course, he credits this to the grace of the Christian God. No surprise there. Actually, what is kind of surprising is that he constantly speaks in pagan or apparently pagan terms. I know this is just a rhetorical device he's using, but I still find it really interesting. Nature is the mother of the arts, he says. Mother Nature! he says, gave language to Adam and Eve. He even freely mentions philology and mercury, writing, Whoever tries to thrust asunder what God has joined together for the common good should rightly be adjudged a public enemy. One who would eliminate the teaching of eloquence from philosophical studies begrudges Mercury, eloquence, his possession of philology, and rests from philology's arms her beloved Mercury. Although he may seem to attack eloquence alone, he undermines and uproots all liberal studies, assails the whole structure of philosophy, tears to shreds humanity's social contract, and destroys the means of brotherly charity and reciprocal interchange of services. Pretty interesting passage, eh? I mean, forget for the time being that he mentions both the idea of a social contract, that old thing, as well as the reciprocal interchange of services... You know, the basis of a voluntary or free market? Like 500 years before the Enlightenment? I promise I'll do an episode all about this dude's politics in the future, but for right now, we're focusing on his educational theory. I just wanted to point out how he could comfortably reference pagan literature and mention Mother Nature in a book that's addressed to the man who would soon become the most important religious figure in England, and soon after that, become an actual martyr for the church. More evidence dispelling the myth that all these high Middle Ages guys were a bunch of small-minded imbeciles who did nothing but chant and read the Bible all day. And no, I'm not saying they were all totally awesome, free-thinking renegades, either. This is reality, not a cartoon. Shit's more complicated than black or white. Anyway, he clearly credits God or nature or whatever for humanity's possession of rationality. He breaks this innate possession down into three parts. Natural capacity, memory, and reason. Again, these are things he says every human being is born with. He says that natural capacity, quote, "...is an imminent power infused into one's soul that evokes the initial and fundamental activity of the soul in its investigations." Unquote. It is perception itself. Perception. We've all got it, and if you don't have it, you're dead. You have it when you're a baby, You have it when you're old, you have it when you're asleep. And even if you're one of those who claims not to dream, ask a friend to drop a bowling ball on you next time you're sleeping and see whether or not your perception is turned off. Perception is the innate starting line, according to John. It's the first thing. Next comes memory, and that's pretty easy to understand. First you perceive shit, then you store it away in your mind. Again, these are things that occur naturally. Finally, he tells us that the third inborn quality is reason, which we already know is the ability to weigh what we've remembered about our perceptions against other things we've remembered about our perceptions. We could describe this as a kind of natural sense of judgment. So, one more time, John says that human beings are born with natural capacity, memory, and reason. We could more clearly list them as perception, memory, and judgment. Perception. Memory, judgment. Moving on, Mr. John says that these natural characteristics are what make a liberal education possible. This 12th century clergyman then goes on to articulate a rudimentary scientific method composed of four steps which follow directly from the innate rationality of the human animal. His scientific method is investigation, comprehension, analysis, and retention. So let's take his three steps of rationality and his four steps of scientific inquiry all together now. Number one. Perception. Taking in sense data. My car keys aren't here. Number two. Memory. Holding on to sense data. My keys aren't here, but I know I had them when I got out of the car. Number three. Judgment. Drawing potential conclusions from remembered perceptions. If my keys aren't here or in the car, they must be somewhere else. Number four. Investigation. Testing judgments. I think I'll look on the floor, in this drawer, in the bathroom, in the fridge. Number five. Comprehension. Perceiving and remembering the results of the investigation. Well, shit, my keys aren't in any of those places either. Six. Analysis judging what was comprehended. If they aren't in the house, and they're not in the car, but I had them when I got out of the car... Number 7. Retention. The procurement of new, true information. The jangly bastards were in the driveway all along. Notice how the first three steps exclusively involve the mind, while the latter four steps involve both the mind and an active engagement in the world almost as if he's paralleling the trivium and quadrivium in order to define a kind of innate seven liberal arts that correspond and make possible the classical liberal arts education. Here's what John of Salisbury has to say about this natural seven-step process. Quote, Nature first evokes our natural capacity to perceive things, and then, as it were, deposits these perceptions in the secure treasury of our memory. Reason then examines, with its careful study, those things which have been perceived, and which are to be, or have been, committed to memory's custody. After its scrutiny of their nature, reason produces true and accurate judgment concerning each of these, unless perchance it slips up in some regard. Nature has provided beforehand these three factors, natural capacity, memory, and reason, as both the foundations and the instruments of all the arts. Skipping down the page just a little bit, Natural talent is said to be imminent inasmuch as it has need of nothing else as a prerequisite, but precedes and aids all subsequent abilities. In our acquisition of scientific knowledge, investigation is the first step, and comes before comprehension, analysis, and retention. Innate ability, although it proceeds from nature, is fostered by study and exercise. What is difficult when we first try it becomes easier after assiduous practice, and once the rules for doing it are mastered, very easy, unless languor creeps in, through lapse of use or carelessness, and impedes our efficiency. This, in short, is how all the arts have originated. Nature, the first fundamental, begets the habit and practice of study, which proceeds to provide an art, and the latter, in turn, finally furnishes the faculty whereof we speak. Natural ability is accordingly effective. So too is exercise. And memory likewise is effective when employed by the two aforesaid. With the help of the foregoing, reason waxes strong and produces the arts which are proportionate to man's natural talents." So the problem with the Cornificians, basically, was that they were perfectly happy to acknowledge the first three steps, the ones that deal in pure theory, but they didn't want to concern themselves with the latter four, the ones where you actually have to get up and go out and investigate whether or not your ideas actually conform to reality. The point of the Metalogicon is to say, hey, if you're really concerned with knowledge and wisdom and whatnot, which you should be because that's how we learn virtue, which is what God wants of us, then you got to be willing to actually learn from the outside world and follow certain cognitive rules. Most importantly, John stressed that one must learn logic, so naturally this is what most of the book is devoted to. As he says, logic has its roots in humanity's inborn abilities, but the mere innate is not good enough. The art of logic must be studied and learned. One must shape his or her rational capacity to conform to the rigid rules of how the world works, as laid down by God at the beginning of time the Metalogicon gives us a really clear picture of the medieval trivium, clearer than anything else I've seen anyway. Quote, While there are many sorts of arts, the first to proffer their services to the natural abilities of those who philosophize are the liberal arts. All of the latter are included in the courses of the trivium and quadrivium. The liberal arts are said to have become so efficacious among our ancestors who studied them diligently that they enabled them to comprehend everything they read, elevated their understanding to all things, and empowered them to cut through the knots of all problems possible of solution. Those to whom the system of the trivium has disclosed the significance of all words, or the rules of the quadrivium have unveiled the secrets of all nature, do not need the help of a teacher in order to understand the meaning of books and define the solutions of questions. They, the branches of learning included in the trivium and quadrivium, are called arts, either because they delimit by rules and precepts, or from virtue, in Greek known as ares, which strengthen minds to apprehend the ways of wisdom, or from reason, called arso by the Greeks, which the arts nourished and caused to grow. They are called liberal, either because the ancients took care to have their children instructed in them, or because their object is to effect man's liberation, so that, freed from cares, he may devote himself to wisdom. More often than not, they liberate us from cares incompatible with wisdom. They often even free us from worry about material necessities, so that the mind may have still greater liberty to apply itself to philosophy. John says that grammar, which he defines as the science of speaking and writing correctly, is the starting point of all liberal studies. It is the cradle of philosophy it fosters and protects the philosopher from the start to the finish of his pursuits he says and explains that grammar comes from gramma meaning letter or line according to the online etymological dictionary the english word grammar is derived from the greek grammatike the combination of technē meaning art and gramma meaning letters so it would appear that john is correct here the art of letters must be the first of the liberal arts he explains because it's the way by which wisdom, in written or spoken form, enters into the mind. He explains that language is a tool invented by humanity. It's arbitrary, yes, but the categories it's meant to represent are not arbitrary. Language is intended to imitate nature without actually being natural itself. I would take issue personally with that distinction between something being natural and man-made, but that's a conversation for another time. Speaking and writing properly will make language more useful and set one on the path to wisdom, because one who grasps grammar is more likely to grasp knowledge when it's presented. Grammar, in effect, converts concepts into words. Logic takes up the bulk of the Metalogicon, as I've already said. John defines it as the science of verbal expression and argumentative reasoning and explains that if people would just learn the rules of logic that have been discovered and strung together over the generations, they would save themselves an awful lot of time when trying to figure shit out. Basically, he's saying that ignoring logic is like reinventing the wheel. It's a waste of time, and someone's already done all the work, and you're not going to do anything new anyway. It's done. Logic itself, simply put, has to do with the meaning of words— what words, which are symbols themselves, actually refer to in the real world. Remember again that the word logic comes from logos, word, or meaning, meaning behind the word. This is why it's so important to John that grammar comes first. If the wording isn't right, the concept might be misunderstood, and that would throw the logic all out of whack. Assuming the grammar is correct... Logic then uses language with specifically defined terms that refer to specific concepts, like the Red River and the Brown Sea, in order to get at some kind of universal truth. I think I covered this fairly extensively in the last episode when we looked at Aristotle. So, he says that ethics might be concerned with what somebody should do when their parents' rules contradict the law, and physics is concerned with whether the universe was created or if it's eternal. Quote, Every branch of philosophy, therefore, has its own questions, but while each study is fortified by its own particular principles, logic is their common servant, and supplies them all with its methods or principles of expeditious reasoning. Logic is meta. And yet he adds something very interesting to this, something that concerns the scholastic method. I mentioned earlier that the main feature of the disputatio, or disputation, portion of the scholastic method was called dialectic, the thesis-antithesis-synthesis process of arriving at a conclusion to a big question. I also mentioned that the arguments that were bandied back and forth in dialectic took the form of syllogisms. And you probably remember that in the last episode, I said that syllogisms are deductive, meaning that they deal with truth, not probability. Well... John of Salisbury says that this is not so. Even dialectic deals in probability, he says. Only outright demonstration could ever really confirm something with absolute certainty. If you think this is because John was some sort of proto-science guy, you'd be half right. Here's his reasoning. Quote, Since no one, or hardly anyone, ever fully comprehends natural forces... And since God alone knows the limits of possibility, it is frequently both dubious and presumptuous to assert that a thing is necessary. For who has ever been absolutely sure about where to draw the line between possibility and impossibility? Many ages took the following principle. If a woman gives birth to a child, she must have had previous sexual intercourse, whether voluntary or involuntary, with someone, to be a necessary axiom. But, finally, in the fullness of time, it has been shown that it is not such, by the fact that a most pure and incorrupt virgin has given birth to a child. Something that is absolutely necessary cannot possibly be otherwise, but something that is conditionally necessary may be modified. Victotinus, in his work on rhetoric, explains this when he discusses necessity. He tells us that while previous sexual intercourse may be inferred with probability, it cannot be deduced as absolutely necessary from the fact of childbirth. Augustine asserts that necessary reasons are everlasting and cannot in any way be gainsaid. It's clear, however, that the reasons of probable things are subject to change, since they are not necessary. He goes on and on like this, basically culminating in saying, Quote, "principles of demonstrative logic are necessary those of dialectic are probable" Unquote. what demonstrative certainty is even possible then if we live in a world of miracles sure odds are that a pregnant lady ain't a virgin but hey there was that one girl and you know there was that time in the old testament when god stopped the sun in the sky for like 3 days so we can't really say with any certainty that the sun rises in the morning and sets at night or even that a day is based on Earth's relation to the sun at all. What John seems to be saying here, and this is my interpretation, of course, I could be wrong, but he seems to be saying that in a world with a God that performs miracles, all premises that make universal claims are questionable. And yes, I know that that itself was a universal claim, but it's not my conclusion, I'm pretty sure it's his, but I could be wrong. If my reading is accurate, This would mean that John believed that a 100% sound argument was virtually impossible, because a given premise could appear true today and be miraculously reversed tomorrow. And for an argument to be sound, of course, its premises must both be absolutely true. Even still, John had the utmost respect for dialectic, and by no means did he say that because it deals in probability, it shouldn't be studied. On the contrary, he spends much of the logic section of his book encouraging people to study probability, stressing its practical importance both in philosophy and in day-to-day life. I think he would say that there are plenty of things that are so probable that, for all practical intents and purposes, they might as well be true, but in reality are not in some kind of transcendent or cosmic sense. But that's not really something that the average person deals in, and so that's not what he's focusing on he still highly advocates for the use of dialectic. And you know, I actually think this is a really important stepping stone between the deductive certainty that Aristotle put forth and the inductive probability that's going to come up in the scientific method, which we're going to finally look at in the next episode. John certainly has plenty more to say on the subject of logic, but if you want to know what exactly that is, you're just going to have to go and pick up a copy of the Metalogicon yourself and read it. In sum, logic converts words back into concepts, and then weighs these concepts against one another. Finally, there's rhetoric, the bow atop the trivium. This is what makes logical conclusions transmissible to others. It's the art of eloquence, the ability to speak and write well. Notice how we come full circle, back to words and grammar, only now the goal is not to use them to represent concepts outside of ourselves, but to represent concepts inside of ourselves, concepts that have been carefully crafted in the workshop of logic. Rhetoric is the vehicle by which truth is delivered, and yet it can also be used as a weapon. I'm sure I don't need to explain to anybody how some smooth talker can whip people all up into a frenzy and get them to buy into some serious bullshit. Happens all the time. Once again, turn on the news. Sophists in ancient Greece taught rhetoric or convincing speech, in the words of the comic playwright Aristophanes, in order to make the worse argument appear the better. Yet this is obviously not the rhetoric that our pal John has in mind. Instead, he believed that rhetoric followed naturally from the two previous elements of the trivium, and that any eloquent speech that was not rooted in logic was a danger. In fact, it was the very danger he was addressing in the book. While this cornificent sect does not condemn eloquence, which is necessary to everyone and approved by all, it holds that the arts which promise eloquence are useless. The cornificents do not promise to make everyone mute, which would be impossible and inexpedient. Rather, they would do away with logic. Rhetoric converts concepts back into words, and disseminates them for all, well, some, to hear or see. That pretty much summarizes John of Salisbury's treatment of the trivium in his book The Metalogicon. Before we move to the ending portion of the show, though, I'd like to contribute one short observation of mine regarding the relationship between the classical trivium of the seven liberal arts, grammar, logic, rhetoric, and the so-called natural or innate trivium that we discussed before, perception, memory, judgment. What is perceived is put into terms, and what is perceived is also remembered. What is remembered is analyzed, and what is remembered is also judged. What is judged is expressed, and as something new becomes available for perception once again. In other words, your rhetoric becomes my grammar. Your output becomes my input. How's that for a well-rounded education in Kiklios Paideia? I know that's all pretty abstract and whatever, and maybe it didn't quite make sense, so if you look at the title image of this episode, you'll see a little diagram that I put together that hopefully will get across the point I'm trying to make, because I do think there's actually something to it. John of Salisbury makes it pretty clear that the Trivium was the backbone of formal education in the High and Late Middle Ages, This had its upsides, as we've just heard, but as I understand it, it also had some downsides. The Latin trivium was a kind of cultural creation device. Now, this is just my interpretation of the information I've gathered so far. I'm the first to admit that I've got a hell of a lot more to learn when it comes to scholasticism and the liberal arts and medieval philosophy and, well, really, everything. So I could be way off on this. But here's what I'm seeing at this point. To explain what I mean by cultural creation device, let me put it in the proper context. The Lectio. Exposition. Lecture. The first half of the scholastic method. The instructor would engage in rhetoric by quoting and commenting on an authoritative text, something by an auctor, like Augustine, or Cicero, or Virgil, or Boethius. The students, however, would be in the grammar phase of learning in that they would consume and understand the words by identifying the concepts that they were intended to represent. The students would, in effect, be inundated with the terminology of these so-called authorities, people whose authority was granted because the church deemed their work acceptable and useful to it in some way. Then, later in the disputation, the students would apply logic and dialectic to the content they received in the exposition, But this logical discourse and consideration always occurred within the box of what was acceptable to the church. From there, an accomplished scholastic could then go out and compose his own work, his own piece of rhetoric based on new logical combinations of the data laid out by the church's authorities, which could then be considered by a new generation of scholastics. I think, and again, I'm definitely open to learning more on this, but I think that the trivium at at least to a degree, acted as a mechanism by which the dominion of the Catholic Church and its culture were continually and artificially reaffirmed by the intellectual class. Now, I've been saying this whole episode that people give the Middle Ages a bad rap, and I'm fully aware that the Scholastics were incredibly logical thinkers and were probably the greatest debaters ever. But what I'm saying is that they were really good inside a limited system. They were cut off from so much of the thinking that was going on elsewhere in the world at the time, not to mention what had gone before them. It's as if the Trivium was a tool designed to practically achieve what Plato laid down for his philosopher kings in the Republic. It filtered out all the dangerous bullshit and defined what was to be talked about. It then defined the parameters of discussion, and then the outcomes of these discussions would, in many cases, actually affect church doctrine and therefore affect the spiritual and physical lives of the majority classes of Europe. The Trivium was even used as a tool of ruling elites well after the Middle Ages came to a close. For instance, men occupying some of the most influential positions in the British Empire, specifically guys like Cecil Rhodes, Matthew Arnold, and John Robert Seeley, explicitly wanted to utilize the medieval Trivium model to unify the English-speaking polities around the world in order to more thoroughly dominate the world. I mean, they wrote about this. But all that is a huge subject for another time. If it sounds interesting to you, though, I really recommend the work of Kevin Cole at unityofthepolis.com, where he really dives deep into the details of British imperialism as well as into the history of the trivium and its use as a tool of ruling elites so definitely check out his work on the Trivium for much more information than I'm giving here. Again, that's unityofthepolis.com. Now, obviously the scholastic instructors of the 12th century weren't responsible for what a bunch of self-obsessed Brits were getting up to 800 years later. The point is that both parties used the Trivium to consolidate vast areas of land under the rulership of an intellectual elite, plato style Whether or not the medieval teachers knew this was the function the Trivium was serving is hardly even important. It worked anyway. So well that centuries later, history's largest empire would seek to revitalize the Trivium in order to reap its homogenizing rewards. In ancient times, the liberal arts had been kept in relative obscurity from the masses. Now, in the Middle Ages and beyond, They were widely taught and employed as the overt administrative backbone of medieval European civilization. They became the basis of the clergy's culture. But immediately, from the very beginning, a wall of dogma was built around the liberal arts, a wall which nobody was allowed to breach. Here are the questions you can ask, here are the questions you can't ask. The pursuit of knowledge about the self and about the world was tightly limited. Education was leveraged by the ruling elite of the day to empower the political and priestly status quo. It's true that within that tiny frame, all debates were welcome. And again, medieval scholars may have actually been history's best and most competent debaters. They were intensely logical and well-spoken, within the predetermined boundaries of acceptable thought. Anything within Catholic doctrine, all the details... Those things could be debated and were debated fiercely. And sure, John of Salisbury could even make reference to philology and Mercury and Mother Nature, because he did so in defense of the accepted worldview. Imagine if he had actually argued that divine beings wedded in heaven, or if nature, not God, was the creative force of the universe. I think things might have gone a bit differently for him. The grounds of Catholic doctrine itself were not to be questioned. The methods used to analyze the details of the religion could not be applied to the religion itself. To me, this is part of what makes the great medieval philosophers so interesting. On the one hand, they have so much to teach us about logic and making arguments and criticizing arguments. And on the other hand, they operated within a very small slice of mental potential in which the most important fundamental parameters for debate had been put in place by God and were therefore not up for debate themselves. Bit of a paradoxical situation, don't you think? The all-important, inherently irreverent aspect of critical thinking, questioning the assumptions which lie beneath ideas and uphold ideas, like Socrates did, was wiped away, and discourse was made to occur within a frame set by powerful people who claimed to speak for the divine. It seems like the Middle Ages saw the sanitation and mass production of liberal education for the purposes of managing populations. I'm not going to say that the church was the first entity to manipulate education for its own gain, not at all, but it was unique in that it was able to do so on such a monumental scale and in such an influential way, and in doing so, it paved the way for later institutions in later periods to do the same by framing intellectual discourse in a way that ensures that even a society's most educated members never wander outside their pen. Maybe the Cornificians had a point. I mean, they definitely took it too far, and I think I agree more with John of Salisbury's critique of their approach than I do with them. But maybe they were just overreacting to a legitimate issue. And I should clarify at this point that I don't think that there was some perfectly formulated conspiracy with guys like John of Salisbury and Thomas Aquinas sitting around a table saying mwa-ha-ha or whatever and deliberately limiting the frame of acceptable thought. This is just what happened, I would say, as a result of the utopian aims of the Church. Like Socrates says in Plato's Republic, knowledge must be closely guarded and carefully disseminated if a people are to remain virtuous. Criticism.
2: And now, what shall we say of this whole utopia? Is it feasible? And if not, has it any practicable features which we could turn to contemporary use? Has it ever in any place or measure been realized? At least the last question must be answered in Plato's favor. For a thousand years, Europe was ruled by an order of guardians considerably like that which was visioned by our philosopher, During the Middle Ages it was customary to classify the population of Christendom into laboratores, workers, bellatores, soldiers, and oratores, clergy. The last group, though small in number, monopolized the instruments and opportunities of culture and ruled with almost unlimited sway half of the most powerful continent on the globe. The clergy, like Plato's guardians, were placed in authority not by the suffrages of the people, but by their talent as shown in ecclesiastical studies and administration, by their disposition to a life of meditation and simplicity, and, perhaps it should be added, by the influence of their relatives with the powers of state and church. In the latter half of the period in which they ruled, the clergy were as free from family cares as even Plato could desire and in some cases it would seem they enjoyed no little of the reproductive freedom accorded to the guardians. Celibacy was part of the psychological structure of the power of the clergy, for on the one hand they were unimpeded by the narrowing egoism of the family, and on the other their apparent superiority to the call of the flesh added to the awe in which lay sinners held them, and to the readiness of these sinners to bear their lives in the confessional. Much of the politics of Catholicism was derived from Plato's royal lies, or influenced by them. The ideas of heaven, purgatory, and hell, in their medieval form, are traceable to the last book of the Republic. The cosmology of scholasticism comes largely from the Timaeus. The doctrine of realism, the objective reality of general ideas, was an interpretation of the doctrine of Ideas, capital I. Even the educational quadrivium—Arithmetic, Geometry, Astronomy, and Music—was modeled on the curriculum outlined in Plato. With this body of doctrine, the people of Europe were ruled with hardly any resort to force. And they accepted this rule so readily that for a thousand years they contributed plentiful material support to their rulers and asked no voice in the government. Nor was this acquiescence confined to the general population. Merchants and soldiers, feudal chieftains, and civil powers all bent the knee to Rome. It was an aristocracy of no mean political sagacity. It built probably the most marvelous and powerful organization which the world has ever known.
0: All that said, I still feel that I should stress the tremendous value in studying medieval philosophy. I'm not just shitting on the church because it's the fashionable thing to do. I think that everyone should really read Augustine and John of Salisbury and Thomas Aquinas, and if you do so, you will be better for it. These men were titans, particularly John and Thomas. You'll learn all about how to think logically, within a system. This kind of closed system, supposed opposites, but actually having the same set of foundational beliefs, style debate or dialectic, is still in full swing today, of course. A totally competent Democrat and a totally competent Republican can have a totally competent debate without ever questioning the common assumptions that their political views are based on. One of them can argue for more taxes, and the other can argue for less, but both will likely be unequipped to deal with somebody who questions the assumptions regarding taxes themselves. For instance, somebody who says, taxation is theft, or the government is an organized crime ring. Or here's a good one. Public school is a postnatal intellectual eugenics and propaganda program set up to turn your children into dumb, obedient voters. Yes, and would you like the rack or the steak? You get the point. None of those questions would really go over well. Framing is everything. And the medieval frame had incredibly intelligent men debating on all sorts of things, but always resting on the unquestioned assumption that the Bible, as interpreted by the church, was the immutable and infallible Word of God and the acceptance of those authorities that the Church had deemed worthy. For anyone who's interested in learning more about the critical thinking that was going on within that medieval frame, I highly recommend you check out the series The Catholic Church, Builders of Civilization, presented by Tom Woods, which I used a clip from at the beginning of this show. I'll link to the whole series in the show notes. Woods provides a more nuanced look at medieval Christendom than most people ever really get. As I opened with, the Middle Ages and its Catholic Church are often unfairly written off as merely ignorant and superstitious. And hey, full disclosure, I don't consider myself a Catholic. I was raised Catholic, I was baptized, confirmed, ate the body, drank the blood, and got the hell out of there as soon as I could, just like everyone else does. I wasn't married in a church, I got married in a bar for Christ's sake. To be fair, it was technically a meadery, so you can see that my non-Catholic wife and I do share an affinity for the medieval scene, if you will. But anyway, you get my point. I'm not trying to sell you on Catholicism because I'm not a Catholic. Personally, I think it's intellectually limiting, cultish, mobbish, and in many ways, ignorant and superstitious. But nevertheless, I am trying to sell you on the idea that you can look at a historical epoch honestly and relatively fairly, and give credit where credit is due, whether or not you agree with the religious or philosophical persuasions of the people who lived in that epoch. And of course, you should be critical as well. Hell, the whole third chapter of my book is devoted to criticizing the utopian laboratory that was the medieval Catholic Church. But they weren't cartoon bad guys, the Catholics. And many Catholics today are probably decent people. So please, check out that series of shows by Tom Woods on the importance of the Catholic Church in the construction of Western civilization. I promise that if you liked this episode, that series will tickle your fancy just fine. Just like a priest, actually. (laughs) I know that was a cheap shot, I know, I know. But I never claimed to be above that kind of thing, now did I? In conclusion, we talked a lot about words in this episode. Guys like Alcuin and John of Salisbury were very concerned with words. Specifically, how they can be used to convey certain concepts accurately. That, right there, is the most important part of this episode. The liberal arts, specifically the first three, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, the trivium, deal with the proper use of language. But the intense focus on language isn't just to imbue people with the ability to manipulate their words in order to sway people. I mean, sure, you can do that and be like the Sophists that Socrates loved to rag on or the Cornificians that John of Salisbury liked to rag on, but you'd be missing the point entirely. Words are signals that convey concepts, mind things. The point of studying the linguistic arts of the Trivium is not to master language per se. It is to clearly communicate and understand concepts, the meaning or logos behind the words. That is the secret that will liberate the mind. The reason John of Salisbury was so concerned with proper grammar, logic, and rhetoric wasn't that he cared about these things in and of themselves. Remember that the Catholic view on the liberal arts was that they should not be pursued for their own sake, but for the glory and edification of God. You know, God. As in, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and Word is Logos. Listening, reasoning, and speaking properly leads one to a more genuine connection with his or her fellow human beings and to a purer understanding of nature's truths. This is the point of a medieval liberal arts education, in its purest, least adulterated form. Of course, in practice, it served the function of creating a kind of baseline cultural homogeneity It was a system which from its very inception with Alcuin and Charlemagne was intended to artificially unify an empire full of once culturally diverse and self-determined peoples. I definitely don't like that. But I can still appreciate the utility of the seven liberal arts in and of themselves as analogs to John of Salisbury's seven innate arts. Call me a big softy, but the purest message I receive from the Metalogicon is that humans are born with senses, reason, and language. And our mastery of these things can be aided by others if we are humble enough to listen and bold enough to experiment. I'll take that and run with it. Damn the empire, fuck the king, full steam ahead. Thank you for listening to A Brief History of Critical Thinking, Part 3. Light in the Dark. Next time, The Age of Enlightenment.